would be in Acts chapter 14, starting with verse 1. So a few Sundays back, we covered the remainder of Acts chapter 13, and we left off where Paul and Barnabas were basically kicked out of Pisidian Antioch. Today we're going to see that their ministry takes a turn to Iconium, where a lame man is healed. Starting with verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude both of the Jews and of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Whenever the word of God is preached, there will always be opposition to it. So what we need to do is get used to it and praise God for it. Because if you're getting spiritual opposition, that means you're part of something that's huge and unfathomable. I was taught as a rookie police officer, uh, if you go your whole career as a police officer and you don't get one complaint, then you're probably not doing your job. And what he meant, my training officer meant by that was, if you're looking for the bad guys and you're trying to uncover the drug deals and you're locking up criminals, it's just, it's just going to happen. It's the law of statistics. Somebody's going to complain about you. Now, bringing it here, if you go your whole life as a Christian and you never have spiritual opposition, you're probably not living for Christ. Because if you're truly making a difference for Christ, you will arouse the ire of Satan and his hordes. There's plenty of false teachers out there. There's plenty making millions of dollars off the back of the gospel who are completely insulated, teaching false doctrine, living the life of luxury on the back of Jesus Christ, and their lives are fine because Satan's attitude is, they're no threat to my kingdom. I like them just the way they are. From a worldly perspective, Paul just couldn't get along with anyone. You read the life of Paul. He's always getting kicked out of somewhere. He's always stirring up some type of controversy and getting kicked out. But the question is, what was the source of that controversy? Was it based in Scripture, or was he just a troublemaker? If you would turn to 1 Peter 4, starting with verse 15. 1 Peter 4, starting with verse 15. Peter says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So if we are if we call ourselves a Christian and we commit some type of crime and we get arrested, that's just foolishness. That's not spiritual opposition. If we call ourselves Christians and we're controversial just for the sake of controversy and we cause problems and bring it on ourselves, that's not spiritual opposition. According to the scripture, spiritual opposition is suffering for doing good. You're living a clean life. You have a relationship with your Lord. You're trying to be an example to your family and you're suffering for doing good. That's what spiritual opposition comes from. Now, so Paul and Barnabas, they head over to Iconium, which is about 60 miles southeast of where they were before in Pisidian Antioch. We're still, if you remember about a month or so back, I put up the projector, we're still in modern-day Turkey. If you can visualize the Mediterranean up to the upper portion, the northeast portion is Turkey. And that's where these locations are in the modern day. We have to think of the dedication of somebody like Paul and Barnabas. Their lives were not their own. If you really think about it, they were vagabonds for Christ. 
they had really no place to, to lay their head, no place to call home. They went from city to city to city preaching the gospel. And I got to tell you, if you look at missionaries today, we have um, Al mentioned Stephen, our missionary to Guatemala. Since he was 17, for five years, he's been a missionary in Guatemala. Doesn't have a 401k. I don't believe he's college educated. Uh, and the world would just look at him as, ah, eh, he's a nobody. He blends into society. I'm impressed by this guy. You know, to me, I look up to him <laughs> because of his dedication and his service for the cause of the gospel of Christ. So, verse 3. They get any spiritual oppositions. And verse 3 reads, quote, So the spiritual opposition was so great that Paul and companions got frightened away and they all went home, the end. Well, that's not really what it says. Verse 3. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Paul and Barnabas, you see, were even more steadfast, notwithstanding the opposition, and God rewards them for it. The word therefore indicates that they weren't going to give in to satanic opposition. It's almost as if to say, uh, Russell, <laughs> you're going and you're the, the Lord's, you know, you're serving the Lord and there's all this spiritual opposition your, your finances are being attacked, your family's being attacked, and you say, therefore, I'm going to go right into the head of the storm. That's what we're reading here. Their lives were practically coming apart. They're being kicked out. There's oppositions. And what happens? They go right into the, into the eye of the storm. And the question is, do we have that resolve? I mean, again, we look up to Jesus as our ultimate example, but these men and women emulated Jesus. It's very impressive, their track record. Verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. The gospel message causes division because Jesus caused division. Now, many, especially in the media, have a wrong impression of who Jesus was. And many preachers have a wrong impression of who Jesus was. They're content Sunday after Sunday to preach a flowery message to say everything's going to be okay when you become a Christian, God wants you to be rich, you'll never get sick, you'll never have problems, and keep the, keep the cash flow coming in from the congregation. That's what they're content with doing. But that's not reality. The true message of the gospel will bring division. And let me prove my point. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, starting with verse 34. Matthew 10, 34. Jesus says this, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be that of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives me who sent me. It's a pretty powerful statement, and you can see it. Maybe in your family, certainly in my family, you'll see that division. When you say, I'm going to live for Christ, you're going to, you're going to ruffle some feathers. And what did Jesus mean? Did Jesus come to make people's family lives miserable <laughs> so in the holidays they could all be fighting with each other? No. 
The point was, when Jesus came, he said, make a decision. Everybody was comfortable. Rome, the Jews, you know, everybody had their traditions. And everybody kind of, at that point in time, kind of got along. A lot of reason why Rome and the Jews, or the Jewish leadership, wanted to get uh, rid of Jesus was because he caused, he was stirring up the pot, and it was problems. And he was causing people to make a decision. Are you on God's side or are you not on God's side? And he drew a line. And he said, you can't stand on the fence. You have to be on one side or the other. That's what he's talking about. So the gospel message will, by nature, you know, the word of God in Hebrews 4 tells us it is a sword. It cuts to divide between joints and marrow and soul and spirit and is a a discerner of the thoughts uh, uh, and tense of the heart. So that's what the sword of the spirit does, which is the word of God. And some also wonder, well, how could half the city be divided if signs and wonders were done here? Because that's a big push today, signs and wonders, big movement among Christendom. Got to see signs, got to see miracles, this person's getting healed, all that kind of stuff. But what it goes to show is that signs and wonders have their place, especially in the early church and even today, but it's not to be over-focused on. You're not going to win everyone over with signs and miracles. Moses didn't. I mean, major miracles done by the hand of Moses. Of course, God did it, but he did it through Moses. Didn't win a lot of people over. The earth a lot of times swallowed up and swallowed people up who were rebelling against Moses. Moses' own brother and sister rebelled against him, right? How could you do that after seeing these great miracles? But that's what it goes to show you. Look at Jesus. The Son of God came. He did incredible miracles. There wasn't a person that didn't come to him that was sick or injured that he didn't send them away completely whole. Jesus did miracles. He didn't win everybody over with those miracles, did he? And what about Paul and the apostles? They did miracles too, but they didn't win everybody over with those miracles. They're still going to be naysayers. They're still going to be rebellious people. So our focus needs to be on the word of God being preached and leaving the signs and wonders to God and praying that he is able to do that. He is able to make those signs and wonders happen. Verse 5. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. Now, Lystra and Derbe were also cities in Lyconia. Again, we're still in that kind of central southern belly of Turkey um, area today geographically. So why did sometimes the disciples stay? And why did sometimes the disciples flee? And then sometimes, eventually, they submitted themselves to capture and ultimately death. Kind of doesn't make sense. Was it whimsical? What was it? Jesus did the same thing, though. In the beginning of the ministry, many tried to lay hands on Jesus and take him and seize him and even stone him. But what did Jesus do? He fled. Only later on to submit himself to to the authorities to be crucified on the cross. Same situation with Peter and Paul and many others. There's an old saying attributed to Oliver Goldsmith, and some can even trace it back to the Roman historian Tacitus, and I'm sure you've heard this. He who fights and runs away may live to fight another day, but he that is in battle slain will never rise to fight again. My stepfather often quoted to me uh, this as a boy because there was a lot of rough, rough kids in the neighborhood, so he said, listen, if things get tough, run away. And he would always quote this to me. But those in the world retreat because of survival and self-preservation, only to be victorious later on. That's what the quote is, is espousing to. But the child of God, on the other hand, is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. 
and may later take a stand at a cost to his own life if it is to glorify God. Jesus, Peter, Paul, all fled initially, remember that, and they were even warned by God to stay away from certain areas and to flee for their own protection. But eventually, they gave their lives to glorify God. And that could be a hard pill to swallow because there may come a point in time, look, we live in America. We have freedom of religion. We have rights. Uh, the government can't just barge into your house and, and execute you. I mean, this is a great country. So most of us will probably live a normal life and, and you know, and die like everybody else. But there may come a time in our life where that changes. There may come a time that we may actually have to give up our lives to, for the sake of glorifying God. And that's not uncommon in the world outside of the United States, especially for Christians who are being persecuted. And honestly, if we're all honest with ourselves, I think to myself, well, Lord, this is how I want to glorify you. I want to be successful, and I want to live to a ripe old age and see my grandkids and glorify you with my success, Lord. Right? That's the flesh. But according to the scripture, especially the early church, a lot of Christians lost their lives to glorify God. We don't want to hear that. There was a book that I read that, you know, okay, I'm a guy. So it was on my bookshelf. I don't know how it got there. It was actually still in the plastic. And it said, The Pastor's Wife. And I look at it, and it struck me. But I'm, I'm thinking, well, this is a woman's book. It says, The Pastor's Wife. I shouldn't be reading this, right? So I take off the plastic, and I start reading it. It was from Sabina Wombrand, her husband, Richard Wombrand, from um, Voice of the Martyrs. They both have gone to be with the Lord since. And I started reading the book, and I was captivated. I read like 150 pages in one night. I just couldn't put it down. And this woman, her and her husband, the sacrifice they made for the cause of Christ was unbelievable. Things that we wouldn't even dream of doing. Being separated from her five-year-old boy, being put in a communist prison because she wouldn't deny Jesus Christ during the time of the Cold War behind the Iron Curtain. A lot of awful things happened back then. The secret police, okay? Uh, and she was in prison. He was in prison for 14 years. I think she was in prison for maybe four years. But to be away from your little kid for four years, all you have to do is deny Jesus, sell out some members in the church, which a lot of people would have done, and she would have been back with her son, but she refused to do that. Worked in labor camps, almost died a few times. Incredible book. I suggest that you read it if um, you, know, you have the time to do that. Long story short, are we okay if the chessboard is the game of life and, and God is the king? Are we okay to be those little pawns that march forward, march forward, and maybe to have our lives taken, cut short just to make the king victorious? And that's the attitude that we have to have as Christians, as believers. And that's the attitude that these men had in this book. Verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. So this crippled man had the faith to be healed, as did, if you remember when we went through the Gospels, uh, if you remember the woman who had the flow of blood for so many years, she said, all I have to do is touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and I will be made well. And as soon as she, just without any strength that she had, a little bit of strength she had left, she touched his garment, and automatically the flow of blood was stopped, and the woman was instantly healed. She had faith, just like this man. However, 
Many others did not have faith, and they were still healed. And I'm getting to a point here. Lazarus was the extreme example. Lazarus was dead and rotting for four days in the tomb when Jesus called him forth and said, Lazarus, come forth. So Lazarus, who knows where Lazarus was at that time, but he certainly wasn't sitting there in the tomb saying, I hope Jesus comes and heals me. He was dead and rotting for four days. The same thing with Eutychus, and we'll see that in Acts, uh, the man that Paul heals. And also Peter's lame man. If you remember in the book of Acts, Peter's lame man was looking for a handout. He was looking for money. And Peter looked at him intently and said, I don't have silver and gold, but what I have to you, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. So, yes, there were people who had faith to be healed, to be healed but there were also people who didn't have faith and were also healed. So beware of formulas. Many will tell you there's a certain way to pray. There's certain things that you say. If you say these certain things in your prayer, God will hear you. Or there's a certain body positioning. Certain body positionings during prayer are better than others, and God will hear you more if you put yourself in a certain position. There's a certain way to be healed. There's a certain way to fast. I would say look it up in Scripture. If it's not in Scripture and it's not commanded in Scripture, you're not bound to it. Because God doesn't work in formulas. Jesus made it clear. The pagans had their mantras and their formulas. The children of God had relationships. There's a big difference. Because with a formula, it's, I guess, a form of spiritual laziness. If I just do this and I just do that and I follow this formula and I get God off my back, that'll be okay. I'll lead a good life and he'll do what I want him to do. But a relationship is different. With a relationship, you put time in with another person. You listen to another person. You see the desires of that person you're in a relationship with and what they like, and you try to to do that. You try to change for that person. See, a relationship, as you all well know, we all have relationships with somebody. A relationship is a lot more difficult, and it takes more time and effort and humility than just a formula. So God works in relationships. And even in relationships, God works as he pleases. God doesn't give us everything that we want. Because then we would almost be tempted to serve God because he's like a celestial Santa Claus. Everything we ask for, he gives us. Well, I really like God. He's my pal, right? But is God still your pal in tough times? That's the question. So we have to take the good with the bad. The Bible says the rain rains on the just and the unjust. God shows favor on both, you know, the good things will happen to the wicked and the righteous. But in the end, when the, the sheep and the goats are separated, that's when those who are the righteous will live for eternity. And those who are the unrighteous will also live for eternity, but they'll be in hell. And that's clear in Scripture. Verse 11. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Laconian language or dialect, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Wow. All of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas, you know, they're getting kicked out of cities. Boy, their fortune has really changed now, right? This isn't a bad gig. They're regarded as gods. They get a lot of attention. All their needs were being met. Boy, this is a great commercial for a retirement plan, isn't it? Hey, this is a place that we could stay for a while. And of course, I'm being facetious. Certainly, this would be an appeal to the flesh. And the temptation would be to take the focus off of Jesus now. I'm sure we've all seen, at least on television, men and women under the guise of Christianity 
practically elevated to godhood status. But let's see how Paul and Barnabas handle this uh, attention. Before we do that, I just want to give you a little history on Greek mythology as they're being called Zeus and Hermes. Okay? Zeus in Greek mythology, I find it interesting. We're in a school, and I pray in one of the classrooms before we come, come up. And, you know, God can't be in the school. You know, Ten Commandments, you can't have the Ten Commandments in the school. But in the classroom that I pray, <laughs> you got Zeus, you got all these Greek mythology. It's okay to worship false gods, but you can't worship the true God in school. Isn't that bizarre? Talk about spiritual warfare. Anyway, they're very good to us, so I hope he doesn't hear this message. Anyway, Zeus. Zeus was the chief god over all other gods. The Roman counterpart to Zeus, because they were also polytheists, the Greeks and the Romans, the Roman counterpart was Jupiter. Hermes was the god who served as a herald and messenger to all the other gods. If you ever see some of these um, uh, you know, package delivery companies, uh, you know, if they want to explain to the people that your package will get to the other place, you ever see, I forget who's got the icon, but they have their... Well, FTD is one of them. They have the golden guy with the hat and the wings and the winged shoes. That's your Hermes. <laughs> okay? And it's to show that he was a herald or he was a messenger. Wherever that message or flowers have to go, it'll get there because Hermes is going to take it. The Roman version or counterpart is Mercury, now that we got that out of the way. There was a supposed Lystrian myth or legend or folklore, and I got this from one source, but it's very interesting. Supposedly, after this, or prior to this time period of Paul and Barnabas coming, the Lystrian folklore was that at some point in time, Zeus and Hermes came down to Lystra, and they were disguised as regular people, and nobody showed them hospitality. They didn't have the hospitality ministry back then. There was no Patty or Heather to, to welcome them. So there was no hospitality except for an elderly couple who showed them hospitality, and Zeus and Hermes revealed themselves, got very angry, and killed everyone in the town except for this elderly couple. Now, that would explain the Lystrian overreaction to what Paul and Barnabas were doing, because maybe they thought, wow, it's Zeus and Hermes again. They've come down again in the form of men, as you can read, and this time we're not going to blow it because they're going to wipe us out. So all of a sudden, the, the oxen are brought forth, the garland is brought forth, all the people are rejoicing and praising them, and it's just a big overreaction. And why do I say it's an overreaction? Because if I know, and I've never met them, if I know Paul and I know Barnabas, when they healed, it wasn't like something you see on television with the music and the fanfare and everybody jumping around. It was something very discreet because it was from the power of God and these were humble men and they healed this lame man, probably not trying to bring attention to themselves. Okay? So you take all this together and it, it kind of makes, it, it makes a lot of sense here. So these people pull out all the stops for Paul and Barnabas, thinking that they're Zeus and Hermes. Today, unfortunately, again, I, I, you know, look, they, they do well temporally, these people, but again, under the guise of Christianity, there's men, many men and women who have larger-than-life ministries on the, backs, on the back of Jesus Christ. They're well taken care of, their names are mentioned far more than Jesus, and they no longer become shepherds. They become more like icons. Again, let's see how Paul and Barnabas handle this in contrast to what we see today. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, 
Why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. In verse 14, you see the tearing of the clothes, the rending of the clothes. And this was a Jewish, a Jewish sign, which also still carries through today, of horror or sorrow. As if Paul and Barnabas were saying, hey, stop the music, stop the dancing. This is a bad idea. There's no way we could accept this worship from you. What this reminds me of, too, is in the book of Revelation, when the angel is showing the Apostle John the culmination of, of human history and all these incredible uh, imagery and visions in, in the book of Revelation. John, the Apostle John, gets a little carried away, and for a moment he actually falls down at the feet. He admits this in, in, in Revelation to worship at the foot of the angel, and the angel says, Get up, see that you do not do that. I am a fellow servant as you are. As men, even as angels, as the good angels, of course, we are not to receive worship for anyone. We are only instruments to be used by God. And I just love the humility of Paul and Barnabas. They're just instruments. When we serve God, we're all expendable. I've said that before. If something happens to me tomorrow, God will replace me with somebody else and you'll move on because I'm expendable. We're all expendable in the body of Christ. And we work together and we knit together for the common cause. When one of us starts to get out of line and start getting focused on ourselves, in the human body, that's known as cancer. These cells, they absorb too much nutrients and they start pulling nutrients away from the rest of the body because they're focusing on themselves. So when we don't work together with other Christians in the body of Christ to achieve the common goal, we, goal, we act like the cancer cells do. It's pretty, pretty sobering. So the question is, how do we respond when the attention is turned to us? Well, in the beginning, uh, if you're green, it's a little bit tough. This is another reason why the Bible says that before we can move on to big things in ministry, we have to be faithful in the little things because power and authority and attention can get to our heads. It's human nature. It's our flesh. It's not just good for God to see that we don't mess up the little ministries, but it's also good for God to see that we can handle that attention and that authority. Okay. When I first became a police officer and I got my own patrol uh, route and my own shiny brand new police car to drive around in by myself, I was excited. I would get out to the store and the little kids would come up to me and I had a gun and all that authority, right? And I tell you, you know, look, I'm just being honest, okay, because, well, you know, let's talk here. We should all be honest. It gets to my head a little bit, but it eventually subsided. Well, even in ministry, when uh, I started really studying the Bible and, and really making an effort in serving, and I was asked to do some teaching. Um, you know, my, I remember my first teaching role. I was so excited to teach God's Word. But after doing it for a while, sometimes you look at yourself maybe a little bit more than you should. And I've been through that stage too. But let me just fast forward to today. One of, uh, actually, two of my mentors who were pastors for encouragement had said to me, he said, Joe, you know, you're the pastor after Cornerstone and Calvary Chapel Overage. You have one of the bigger Calvaries in New Jersey. Now, a few years ago, that probably would have gone to my head. 
But I've got to tell you, today it really doesn't affect me because honestly I'm too tired and I've been through too much <laughs> to get a big head about it. So it, it's okay. That's great. It's a big calorie. <laughs> now how does my life get easier? That's all I want to know. <laughs> but my true heart's desire, and if you know me, those of you who know me well, and even if you've been here for a year or a few months from what I teach from the pulpit, this is my true heart's desire. Number one is to teach the word. And number two, to be obedient. And they, they go together. Um, I shouldn't say one is ahead of the other. Really, obedience is first. But in obedience, I teach the word. And number three, what really makes me excited, guys, is when I see you get the same desire to learn the word of God and to be immersed in the word of God as I am. When that's infectious and it starts to spill over to you like a virus and you say, and this is what I learned in the Bible, and this is what, you know, I love it. So to me, I know I've done my job when, when I've given you the bug <laughs> and you're excited, just as excited about the word of God as I am. That's, that's all I want to do. I don't care about the big numbers. Um, we don't do anything gimmickry in this church. We don't do anything to try to get more people in the church, although they're welcome if they do come. And Jesus, too, he was ambivalent to the crowd. In the one sense, he, uh, they were there, so he taught them. But in the other sense, a lot of times he withdrew from the crowds because it wasn't about the crowds. It was about Jesus making a difference in people's lives individually. Okay, And that actually can have a bigger effect than just preaching to the crowds. So the question is, how do we handle accolades? And this is a heart check. Do we give glory to the Lord? If you've been around ministry long enough, you'll see people as quick as they rise in ministry, and if they rise real fast, sometimes they fall just as fast. You know, you see um, sometimes people are puffed up in ministry. You see pride in ministry. Sometimes there's a lack of honesty, and sometimes there's a lack of restraint. And it's sad. People come and go from ministry. And ministry is hard because when you, when you put yourself into ministry, that's when the spiritual attacks come. And a lot of people succumb to those spiritual attacks and they fall away. Verse 15. So Paul is now, um, he, he starts to speak and he's starting to reason with these people about why they shouldn't be doing this. And what's interesting is uh, someone coined the term creative adapt, adaptability. Yeah, creative adaptability. That's it. Paul didn't necessarily say, hey, hey, Lystrians, let me talk about Isaiah. Let me talk about Jeremiah. They didn't know the Old Testament. But Paul reasoned with them about a monotheistic God. This is the God we serve. He's the God over all these false gods because they don't exist. This is the way, and he, he created things. What Paul did was he met them where they were at. He didn't start quoting things that they had no idea about. And that's what we have to do. We, we need to be all things to all men. We need to meet people where they're at that we may win the more to Christ. I study the Greek, I study history, I study all that stuff. Eh, the gospel's the gospel. I don't need all that stuff. But sometimes I'll run into somebody like um, <laughs> Christmas Eve, <laughs> Marty's laughing back there. I ran into somebody who was very smart and very well educated, and I was able to speak his language, right? And it was really good. We had a great conversation about God. Okay, so creative adaptability. Verse 17, Paul basically says that, um, you know, God gave us all these things as a witness. Um, let me just read Romans 1.20 for you, which really could explain uh, the Lystrians a little bit more. Romans 1.20, a few verses here. Paul says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and godhood so that they are without excuse. 
So he's even talking about people who maybe weren't brought up in the Jewish faith, faith, weren't taught about the monotheistic God, but now he's starting to talk about the creation and what God has made, how they have God's signature all over them. It says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God through, you know, again, evolution is foolish. When you see the the amount of, of care and intricacy God put in the cell, uh, you know, and, and the things that are on a microscopic level and the macrocosmic level, you see that there has to be a God. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then he, he gets into some other things here. But what happens is, uh, you know, we're supposed to see even uh, tribes that are uneducated in remote parts of the world, they can see through the, the, the cycles of, of the weather and through uh, nature, the trees, the animals, and, and everything that's around them, that there is a God. We, we have to, man innately has to worship something. Unfortunately, sometimes man worships himself because he doesn't want to, to acquiesce to a God where he's accountable to, and that's where evolution comes in. Okay, the Big Bang, okay, how could something come from nothing? How could order come from randomness? Uh, We've got to figure this out because there is no God. They always have to start with that premise because they can't acquiesce to God. I know, man, this is why I have notes because I really get off on tangents sometimes. But the point is that what, what some cultures will do is they'll worship the creature. Maybe they'll worship an animal. Maybe they'll worship the sun. Maybe they'll worship things because they have to worship something. Uh, but they, they're worshiping the wrong things. Okay. So what Paul is saying that the creatures and the creation is a witness. But don't go overboard to worship them. There's a signature there. They're telling you that God exists. But don't go overboard and start worshiping the creation. Re- worship the creator. The rain, the crops, etc. would draw people to God, but not to be worshipped as God. And you see in this pantheism and polytheism, which is alive today. Pantheism, and there's, there's that, um, is, is it, some, some religions believe that God is in everything. God is uh, as much in our hearts, in our bodies as the Holy Spirit, as God is in that speaker. You know, God's in that speaker, he's in that bottle of the water, he's in the tree. That's pantheism, he's in everything. Polytheism means that there's a multitude of gods, like the Greeks and the Romans and Hinduism. They worship multi-gods, a god for the rain, a god for the crops, a god for fertility. You see pantheism and polytheism, and it's alive today. Now, what's interestingly enough is you hear what Paul is saying, but stating today that your polytheism and your pantheism is worthless today is tantamount to bigotry. And if they... You see this every so many years in the Congress, the lawmakers, they try to get these bills together where you can't speak about, you can't speak about certain things in the Bible because it's offensive to other people. And what's happened is Paul spoke the truth in love. Hey, guys, it's futile. It doesn't exist. This isn't the truth. Today, the truth in love, what Paul was using, has been turned on its head in our society. Isaiah 520 speaks about even in their day and even today, that good would be looked at as evil, and evil would be looked at as good. If you look in, in our society, traditional Christian values, the media, the lawmakers, they have a disdain for it. 
But the things that God is against are elevated and saying, hey, that's normal in society. Folks, we have a very confused society. I dealt with a young man um, a few days ago, I think my first day in on my last tour, and uh, he was 18 years old. And I got to tell you, there's so many people, so many young people that are confused and and they... um, they just don't know what to do. They're stressed out, and they, they haven't been taught about God, and they don't know what to do. They've tried the drugs. They've tried all these things, and they just can't seem to get it together. We, lived in a, we live in a very confused society. And the Christian message, the message of hope, the message of eternal life is being squelched by our media and our lawmakers. Case in point, the, the, the Greek gods in that classroom back there, but the true God you can't talk about. Verse 18, and lastly, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes. Sometimes while you're doing God's will, all hell will break loose, so to speak. But that doesn't mean you're not doing your job or being obedient to God. There's a tendency to believe that you know, you're, living, you're trying to live the right life. You, you, you're worshiping God, you're in the word, you're in prayer, and it seems like your life is falling apart. Lord, I don't get it. Am I doing something wrong? And even in my life, that's a tendency for me to think, maybe I'm just crazy. <laughs> maybe it's just me. But... You can see even in Paul's case that he was trying to make the case for God. He was trying to do the right thing. He did everything textbook according to what Jesus would say, and everything was going crazy. Well, we just got kicked out of the last city. Now things don't look good here because they're worshiping us, and we can't stop them. And I know many who are in God's word and doing the Lord's will in prayer, and their lives appear around them to be coming apart. Some examples could be somebody here today. could be a few of you here today. Your job could be hanging in the balance. You know, you're doing all the right things. You don't understand. What do you mean? I'm going to lose my job? Maybe some of you have lost jobs recently. You're trying to put your life back together after uh, the death of a loved one. Could be that you're caring for a sick friend or a relative and you're just exhausted. I counseled a brother not too long ago. He has his own family and he's caring and caring and caring and he's, you know, it's, it, start, it starts to wear on you. Well, where am I going to find the time for this? It's an, it's an emotional attachment. There's so many things there, and you're just exhausted. People in your life have unreasonable expectations on you and take advantage of you because you're a Christian. I threw that one in for the holidays. <laughs> you start meeting people you haven't seen for a long time, and you know, you're a Christian, and they have these expectations on you because you call yourself a Christian. And you almost feel like you've you got to do what they want you to do because then you're not a good Christian. No, not true. People have unreasonable expectations on you. Many have made sacrifices in their lives and wondering when it's their turn. They feel like, you know, the years are ticking on, time is ticking on. I I had these goals set for my life, even in ministry, and they haven't been realized. Lord, what gives? What gives? I'm trying to honor you. Well, I just want to read two scriptures before we we wrap it up. Uh, Psalm 34, 19 says this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Not some, but all. Its New Testament counterpart, 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13, says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I would just add that those evil men and imposters probably appear to be doing very well and not a care in their life. And there's a tendency to say, hey, hmm, I'm, I'm getting persecuted, I see that. No, to stick with the scripture. If you desire to live a godly life, you will get spiritual opposition. 
What will 2008 bring? I don't know. 2007 was a little bit of a rough year for me and my family. I don't know about you, but um, again, 2008, it's just a few days away. It's just a number. It's just another 24-hour cycle, another 365 days. What will it bring? What will it bring in your life? Will we even be here? Will the Lord return to take us home to glory? And if he does, if we knew that the Lord was going to come back in 2008, wouldn't we, we probably, I would probably just quit my job and live off of whatever I had and just go out preaching the gospel, right? That's what we would do. But we don't know what 2008 brings. So I would just say, God is still there. He's still watching over you. Hang in there. Um, he's going to deliver us out of all those trials. Let's pray.